This morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are in a series on prayer and fasting because we're in the middle of our 21 days of prayer and fasting right now. And just by a quick show of hands, how many of you were here last week? Just a quick show of hands, how many were actually in the building here last week? Man, you came back. I'm shocked. I'm so glad that you're here and decided to come back. Because last week we were talking about self-control, and that's just not the most popular thing to talk about. A lot of people don't want to hear about that. And uh, you just had, we had so much fun last week, I figured we would just talk about it again. So I'm glad you came back, and we're going to hear a little more on that subject. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. No, there's a reason why we're talking about it, though. It, it has a lot to do with your relationship with God, and it's, it's kind of the non-spiritual side of your relationship with God, and a lot of people miss that because they think being a Christian is all spiritual, uh, but it's not. And it has a lot to do with uh, the physical element as well, and we're going to continue talking about that this morning. 1 Corinthians 9.24, we looked at this scripture last week. We're going to start there. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all, hu- all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So he's talking about maybe you know, like a marathon or some kind of physical foot race. And he says, in a race, uh, there's a lot of runners, and there could be 500, there could be 1,000. I mean, there could be a lot more. But he says, in, in that race, all the runners are running. In other words, they all have motion, they're all putting forth effort. But there's going to be one that's ahead of everyone. There's going to be one that's at the top, and they're ahead of everybody else. There's only one that receives the prize. Now, what is that based on? You know, what causes a person to finish first? Any excellent athlete that we look at in our day, what, what causes them to win? What causes them to achieve? You know, here in a few weeks, we're going to be watching the Super Bowl. And what is it that is going to determine who wins the Super Bowl? Well, if it were that easy to figure out, how many know there wouldn't be the odds and all that going on in Las Vegas and the betting and things like that, because it doesn't, it's not always the best team that wins, is it? There are a lot of factors. It's not like when somebody wins the Super Bowl in a few weeks that we're going to stand up and go, man, they were just, they, that team literally just had the best physical genetics, and that's why they won. No one would say that, because we know it has so many factors. It has to do with decision-making. It has to do with coaching. It has to do with training. It has to do with discipline has to do with a lot of factors that all come together at once. So when you, say, when you say a lot of people are running, but only one person wins the prize, my mind starts going, yeah, and why did they win? Because this is the point he's trying to get, get us to. He's saying as Christians, the same discipline, the same effort, the same training, the same mindset that athletes are going after the Super Bowl He said Christians ought to have that same mindset in going after God because what we're fighting for is way more important than a a trophy. What we're fighting for is way more important than a title, than a, a wreath, he says, a gold medal. What we're fighting for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're fighting for is our own eternity, but also other people's eternity. So Paul's whole point in this passage is, is it right that athletes would put forth the kind of discipline and effort. I mean, I, I know when the Olympics come around, you have people that they're in the Olympics. You know, some of these guys that are in they've been training since the time they were 
you know, four and five years old, and, and they'll talk, and you'll give them, they'll do interviews and things, and people will ask them, they're like, have you ever had a Coke in your life? And I remember hearing a girl one time say, I've never had a Coke, never had a Coke in my entire life. And I'm like, man, that's some commitment. That's some discipline. From the time she was a child. Why? Because it was so focused on this one goal, going to the Olympics, winning a gold medal. For what? Look, I love the Olympics. I love athletics in general. But in the grand scheme of things, for what? You are willing to make that level of sacrifice to be an Olympian, to get a gold medal. But where are the Christians? Are y'all with me this morning? Where are the Christians that will make that level of sacrifice for God? And you go, well, does it take that level of sacrifice? Well, I'll put it to you like this. Whatever level of sacrifice you put into it is going to determine the effectiveness of your life. Does it mean you're not saved if you don't put in that level? No. Does it mean you're not on your way to heaven? No. You could be, you could be a Christian and you obtained your salvation by faith. That doesn't mean you're going to make an impact on this planet. It doesn't mean you're going to impact people with your life. It doesn't mean you're going to impact your generations of, of your family. No, if you want that, you've got to put in a little something else. And that's one of the reasons why we do prayer and fasting. The reason that we take time to prayer and fast is because we're having this mindset that these, that these runners have, that Paul's talking about, these athletes that they have. We're, we're taking some time to, put, to get that kind of mindset and go, yeah, it's going to take a little extra effort to get where I want to go. There are places that I want to go with God. There, there's things in my life that I want God to be able to use that's going to take a little extra effort and a little extra input. And, you know, I've, uh, I've been pastoring this church, let's see, going on for, I believe, 12 years this year. Yeah, 12 years this year, but been in the ministry for a long time before that. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's funny because as a pastor, you preach, and then after you preach, people come up to you after church and say things. <laughs> That's just part, that's like every Sunday that happens. And uh, I remember one time I was talking uh, on these things. And anytime I talk about effort, anytime I talk about discipline, anytime I talk about self-control, I usually get some, some feedback, some kind of, uh, you know, something from somebody that doesn't like it for whatever reason. And uh, I remember one guy came up to me. He only came to church one time, never came back. I was like, man, I preach other sermons than that. You know, you just come back, give it another chance if you don't like that one. But... Uh, came one time, never came back. But after the service, he was all in a tizzy because he was talking about, well, you know, we're saved by grace and it's not on my effort, it's on Jesus' effort. Listen, we're not talking about salvation. And let's not be foolish either. (laughs) Okay, I know we're saved by grace, but how many know it takes hard work to do anything in life? That, you're living in a fantasy world if you don't think that it takes hard work to be a Christian. And that if it doesn't take discipline, and it doesn't take self-control, and it doesn't take effort. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I can tell you, it takes a lot of effort. And if it doesn't take effort, then why did Jesus warn people before they signed up, hey, you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost, because this is not easy. This is not for the weak-hearted. And he says, if you don't count the cost, you're going to find yourself a few weeks in, a few months in, and you're just going to give up and turn back. Because you didn't have what it took and you thought it was going to be just all grace and all on God and I didn't have to do anything. Well, that's not how it works. There's a lot of effort involved. And the effort is not for your salvation. That's where people get tripped up. The effort, okay, that's on God. That is grace. That's by our faith. But after that, praise God, because of our salvation, because we've received Jesus Christ, 
How many of you know now it's time to put our hand to the plow and do some work for the Lord? And that takes hard work and that takes discipline and that takes self-control. And that's Paul's whole point here is, look, if there are worldly athletes that are putting in this kind of effort for nothing, then shouldn't there be Christians on the other side too that are devoting their whole life to a cause, that are devoting their whole life to a goal and to a purpose, which is a lot greater than winning a trophy. Amen? So he says, only one received the prize. And then he says to Christians, but so I want you to run that you may obtain it. In other words, run that you may win, that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So what we're doing has eternal value. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Look at this, verse 27, and this is what we're doing in fasting. He said, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control or under subjection, One translation says, I make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And this, of course, goes back to the fact that we are a spirit, but that also we have a flesh. In other words, we have a part of us that, that doesn't do right or wants to sin or wants to be lazy or wants to be selfish. And that's the part of you that he's talking about disciplining. Of course, you're not disciplining your spirit. Your spirit's full of God. You got the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. That's that part of you that wants to be like God, follow God, loves His Word. There's another part of you, though, right? Y'all all know that part. There's another part of you. The Bible calls it your flesh, and that's what He's talking about here when He says, I discipline my flesh, I keep it under control. I make it sure that it is in subjection and that I have control over it. In other words, that it will do. What I tell it to do, not the other way around. That I will do what it tells me to do. In other words, I'm going to just be living by the flesh all the time. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, if you imagine what he's thinking about in his time, because this is Solomon writing. Solomon had big, you know, palace and beautiful city. He expanded his kingdom way beyond what David had done. It's beautiful. You know, remember, you remember it said the queen of Sheba came and saw all that he had done, and she was just left breathless with how beautiful the kingdom was, how orderly, how excellent everything was. He said, well, all of that is held up and held in place and protected by the walls. He said there's walls around the whole thing that protect it. Why? Because on the outside, there are people that hate us. There are people that want to destroy us, that would want to come in and ransack the whole place, which eventually happened to, to uh, Jerusalem. But he says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, you've got everything right. It's beautiful. But if you don't have walls, you have no protection. You have nothing to keep out all the problems. You have nothing to keep out all the things that will trip you up. So he says a man's life is like that. You could have all the talent. You could have great wealth. You could have great marriage. You could have everything in life going right. But if you don't have those walls of protection around your life of self-control and discipline, 
How many of you know eventually you're going to lose everything that you have? And we've seen it. We've seen it many times. We've seen people that have a great life, but they have no self-control. And that self-control eventually, that lack of self-control eventually comes back to steal everything that they have. And you'll find that person on their knees, broken, crying at what they've lost because they had no self-control, no ability to control themselves from sin, and they ended up losing everything. That happens all the time. So Proverbs says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What is self-control? Well, last week I said, really, uh, uh, you know, self-control is a modern word um, that we use to interpret the word that's here in, in Greek. But self-control really means flesh control. Because the true self is your spirit. All right, that's the real you. When you die, your body is staying here. You're going to be with God. That's you. That is the real self. So what is he talking about controlling? He's talking about controlling your flesh. So the, the proper word really would be flesh control. That's what he's talking about exercising here. So what is that? Well, I say there's a few ways you could define it. But one way is the ability to execute. In other words, the ability to do certain things that you've planned to do. The ability to keep your word. The ability to force yourself to do hard things. You know, you don't need self-control when you want to do something, right? I don't need self-control to eat chocolate cake. I need self-control to not eat chocolate cake, right? So self-control doesn't come to play. Like, well, I have self-control. You know, I love doing this, that, and the other, and I do it. Well, you don't need self-control when you love doing something. You need self-control when you don't want to do it. That's when your flesh does not want to do it. That's when you most need self-control. Well, how does this play into Christianity? Because there's a lot of things (laughs) in Christianity that you need to do that your flesh is not going to feel like doing a lot of the time. How many of you always feel like reading your Bible? How many of you always feel like praying? How many of you always feel like going to church? How many of you always feel like being generous? How many of you always feel like serving others? I don't always feel like doing those things, but that's where self-control comes in, and I can do the things that I know I need to do and I know that I'm supposed to do irregardless of how I feel. If I feel like reading the Bible that day, fantastic. If I don't, I can still do it because of self-control. If I feel like loving my neighbor, fantastic. It's more fun when I feel like doing it. But if I don't feel like doing it, I can do it by self-control because I have control over my flesh to do what I need to do and what I'm supposed to do whether I feel like it or not. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up is because they say things like this. They go, well, I just don't feel like doing that. Well, if you walk around doing and living by everything that you feel like doing or not doing, you are going to be a miserable person. And your life is going to be in shambles. And I I think back to when we were raising kids uh, early, early on. Now they're a little easier because they can make peanut butter sandwiches for themselves, you know. But back in the day, uh, there was a lot they couldn't do for themselves. Now they make me peanut butter sandwiches. That's, that's the place you really want to get kids to, you know. But I remember back in the day uh, when they were newborns, man, every couple hours. I was used to sleeping all night. Every couple hours. 
crying, whining. I didn't feel like getting out of bed. Well, if I did what I felt like I was doing, my kids would be dead. Because <laughs> I just wouldn't let them take care of themselves if I did what I, feel like doing, what I felt like doing. But we know this, that in order to produce good, we have to have this ability to do what we feel like doing. Excuse me, to do what we don't feel like doing, to do what is right when we least feel like it. And what Paul is teaching us here is that this is a character trait that is developed. And this is what I really want to hone in on this morning. Okay, we're talking about self-control. You're going to get hopefully slightly motivated as you leave here to be, have more self-control. But in reality, there's not much change that's going to take place in any of us this morning from one sermon because that's not how self-control is built. That's not how endurance is built. That's not how grit is built. And that's another definition of self-control is grit. That's a kind of a more modern word, grit. Just that, that quality to push and power through and do what needs to be done. I like people with grit. But what we're going to find out from Scripture is that that's a quality that isn't so much learned. In other words, you don't really acquire it by listening to somebody talk about it. What, what you can get from listening to a sermon about it is the motivation to go out and do what needs to be done to acquire it. But just hearing about it doesn't actually produce that quality in us. And as I talked about last week, grit, self-control, perseverance, endurance, they're, they're all similar words. They, that is something that was put in you from the time you were a child. And if your parents made you endure, if they made you finish things... If they didn't let you quit when you wanted to quit, if they made you do things you didn't want to do, if they didn't hand you every little thing every time you wanted it, then that character has been slowly put in you and slowly produced in you. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule. Are there people that were made to do things they didn't want to do and they turned out horrible people? Yes, of course, that happens, and vice versa. Uh, people that weren't made to do anything, but then they, they saw the value in it and made themselves do things later. That, that happens too. But you realize that you've been developed as a person for decades. And this quality in particular is something that is a slow cooker quality. It takes time. It's not, it's not instant. Which is why in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we get this exciting verse that Paul gives us, Romans 5, 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that's counterintuitive, to rejoice in your sufferings. Most people do not rejoice in their sufferings. As a matter of fact, I think that our whole culture is built around this whole... I think our whole culture is built around this one idea of how do we reduce suffering. <laughs> how do we... It seems like every modern... And I'm not opposed to it. I'm just saying every modern invention is how do we reduce suffering and increase comfort. I mean, think about every new feature that comes out on a car, the microwave the remote, the TV remote, the smartphone, everything is about how do we increase comfort in our lives because as human beings, we love comfort and we hate suffering. But there's a problem with that. And see, Paul had, Paul had the opposite mentality. Paul said, we rejoice in our suffering. Why would he say that? He must know something that we don't know. Why would he say we rejoice in suffering? Because... He tells us the next thing, because we know that suffering produces endurance, 
and endurance produces character. See, comfort does not produce endurance. Ease does not produce endurance. It does not produce character. There's only one thing that produces that, and that is suffering and difficulty, trials. Think about, we were using the example of the athlete. Think about if you've ever been training for anything. How are you going to possibly get to the level of endurance that you want to get to? There's only one way, it's suffering. Lots of pain, lots of sweat, lots of difficulty. The more difficult, difficulty, stress, hardship that you put on your body, the stronger it gets. That's the same principle spiritually. And that's what he's trying to get us to see here. He says, I rejoice in my suffering because I know that I'm getting stronger. I rejoice in my suffering because I know what it's producing, I know what it's producing in me. See, he says endurance, uh, suffering produces endurance, and then endurance produces character. I love that because what he's saying there is the, the, the longer you learn to endure, then it becomes part of your character. It's not just a one-time thing where you had to endure something. No, the longer you endure, and the, and the more you learn to endure, now that endurance becomes part of your character. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. If you, uh, if you are very disciplined in your workout habits, okay, and you, you work out, you go to the gym, you know how to make your body suffer, you know how to endure, and you build that character. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that endurance, you're going to build endurance in that area. But learning to endure in that area is transferable and that it can eventually become part of your character. Does that make sense? Now you're not just somebody that knows how to work out. You're somebody that knows how to endure in all areas because you, you have exercised self-control in that area. It's like if you're raising kids and you, t- you teach your child to listen to you and not put their hand in the cookie jar. Well, that lesson is a simple lesson. But that lesson of obedience will now begin to transfer to every area of their life. If they got swatted on the hand when they went to grab a cookie, then they know when they're playing with something in your purse and you say, don't touch that, they, they remember the cookie jar. And now they remember that. and they, they learned it there, and now they're here. And then when they go to run across the street when you're not looking and you don't have their hand and you tell them to stop, they don't keep going and get smashed by a car because they learned obedience through the cookie jar and that obedience transferred to other areas of their life. That's why, well, we're not going to get off on parenting again this morning. We did that last week. I'm going to stay off of that sidetrack. But your flesh is the same way. See, if you train your flesh to be self-controlled and disciplined in one area, it has the ability to transfer to every area. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is what he's trying to teach us. He said, I rejoice in suffering. Not because I like suffering. It's because I know that suffering produces endurance. And if I learn endurance in this area of, that I'm suffering, if I learn endurance here, eventually it's going to become part of my character and I'm now going to have endurance in every area. This is why I said last week, people who are highly disciplined and have highly self-control have the potential to be amazing Christians. It does not mean they will be amazing Christians automatically. But they have the potential to be Because they have the skills, they have the raw materials to do what needs to be done living for God. So Paul said, we rejoice in our suffering. That's not what we do in America. That's not what we do. We run from suffering at every turn. The slightest bit 
of pain. We get the ibuprofen out, the Advil. Again, not saying anything wrong with this. I'm just saying there's consequences to this, right? The slightest bit of difficulty, the slightest bit of pain. Any, we, we remove it at all costs. I was talking to a guy in the foyer this morning. He had a heated jacket on. I mean, come on. No, I'm just kidding. I told him I was going to make fun of him in the sermon. But every turn, how do we reduce pain? How do we reduce suffering? How do we increase comfort at every turn? I, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day, one of my good friends, and I said, why is it that I have a hydraulic wood splitter, but I still love to split wood by hand? Well, not by hand. That would be a powerful feat right there. With an axe. Why? What is that? What is it about that? Well, it's just, I don't know. There's something, we're soft everywhere we turn. It's like everything is so easy. And you go, well, is that a bad thing? It is if suffering produces endurance. It is. That's why I say fasting is self-imposed suffering. That's what fasting is. You know, we, we live in lives that are so comfortable and easy that sometimes we have to impose suffering on ourselves to to jumpstart this process. You know, well, I don't like fasting. I, I get hungry. Exactly. It's self-imposed suffering to produce a result. As your body learns that it's not going to get every little thing it wants in this season, endurance is produced, and then endurance becomes part of your character. And after three weeks of fasting, you may find that you have a little more self-discipline in your life. You may find that you have a little more discipline to do the things that you need to do. Now, if you just go right back to giving your flesh every little thing it wants, you're going to lose it real fast. But it has the ability to stick with you if you continue this process. So we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. I would say we live in a, in a generation right now uh, that probably has the least hardships of any generation that ever lived in America. And it feels like every generation that passes life in America, life as a human being, gets a little bit easier. Every generation that goes. And so we're losing something every generation. If you go back several decades and you look at people that came out of the, the Depression and World War II, you know, they're referred to often as the greatest generation. It's like, you know, the, and, and I know it wasn't all good, but there's a mindset and a way of thinking that we've just lost. We've lost today. Because constant video games, constant Netflix, constant vegging out just can't produce endurance and it can't produce character constant staring at screens constant entertaining ourselves cannot produce endurance and character i was thinking about this for the for the military you know i was thinking man where's our where's our military going to be in years if if the generations coming up are so soft from no wonder you know we have to increase all the technology in the military Thank God we're increasing in technology in the military because it may have to compensate for a weakness down the road. Exodus chapter 17, verse 10. See, all these things have effects. And this is, look, you can't change the world. You can't change the way the world is going. But you can do this in your own life, and you can make sure that your children are experiencing this. Now, of course, 
My, my kids have a phenomenal life. They probably have it too easy. But there are certain things, certain chores, certain things they do to, to engage this process. Every time, if every time somebody whines or complains, you let them out of it, you're shortcutting this process. And many times a person needs to suffer to learn endurance, and that endurance will build character in their lives. Exodus chapter 17, verse 10. This is an example from the Old Testament. Uh, what's going on here is the, the Israelites were being attacked by a people group called uh, the Amalekites. So Exodus 17, 10 says, So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the top of the hill. So imagine this. Down in the valley, there's a great war battle going on. Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up on the top of the hill, and they're, they're looking down on the battle. And it says, whenever Moses held up his hands, he's got his staff. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone, they put it under him, he, he sat down. And while Aaron and Hur, they came on either side of him, they held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, this is a strange story if you don't understand that it's trying to illustrate another point. Why? Because, right, if, if God is the one giving the Israelites the victory supernaturally, okay, they're fighting Amalek, and supernaturally from heaven, God's giving them power to overwhelm Amalek. Why does he give them power when Moses' hands are raised, but when Moses gets tired and he puts his arm down, now they start to lose? That, that doesn't make sense from, a, from God's standpoint unless you understand that he was, he was pointing to something else. He was showing us something else. So, so, the children of Israel are getting God supernaturally involved in their situation. And the, the key factor is, does Aaron, does Moses have the ability to stand in his strength and hold up this staff? And while he's holding it up, they've got victory. When his arms get tired and they let it down, they begin to lose. And that's the same. It, this is a type and an example of prayer. And the, the point that's being illustrated is, is that many times in life, we need God to get involved. And there's a person who will stand firm and they will hold the line and they will pray over that situation until they get the victory. And there's other people that they'll pray and then they get tired and they walk off. And, and then they let it go for a few days. And then they go back and they'll pray and they'll, maybe they, you know, some pain or situation and they pray again. And then they, they don't see any results. So then they get tired and they walk away. And they don't go for a few days. And so they see up and, th up and down like this. And what this scripture is illustrating us is that, no, there's a very physical side to prayer. There's a very physical element to prayer. Prayer is not just all spiritual. Prayer takes physicality and it takes self-discipline. It takes, it takes a lot of self-discipline, endurance, and grit to show up every day in the same place and pray over something and be diligent about it. 
and stand in the gap. Maybe you're praying for one of your kids. Maybe you're praying for your marriage, and you think, well, I prayed once, and God, God heard it. Well, if you read the Bible, you find out that's not how prayer works. Prayer doesn't work by asking God one time for something and then thinking that it's done. That, there's more to prayer than that. And a lot of times in prayer, what you see are people persevering, going after God day after day after day after day after day until there's a victory, until something breaks, and until they see that situation turn. But how many of you know that takes discipline, and it takes endurance, and it takes character to when you're not seeing the victory, you're not seeing the result, to continue standing and to continue going after something. And so that's what this example is there for. It's showing us that there's more to prayer than what we might, not, might see. Was it God's will for Israel to overwhelm Amalek? Yes, it was. And a lot of people get hung up on this. That's how they think, the, that's how they think God works. That's how they think the spiritual world works. They, it's almost if you talk to some people, they don't even, what is the point of prayer? Because God's just going to do what he wants anyway, right? Apparently not. It was God's will for Israel to overwhelm Amalek, but it was only happening as Moses held the line. And when Moses got tired, he didn't think that was an excuse of, well, I just can't hold my arms up anymore. God, you're going to have to finish it. No. He said, get you some friends. You're getting weak in your own strength. Get you some friends to come alongside you and pray with you and stand with you and hold your arms up and you finish the job. See, but that takes endurance and character. And again, this is a type. Now, how many situations in our life, the answer, please, please pay close attention to this. Okay, how many things in our life are right there, they're just on the other side, but we don't have the endurance or character to push through and get them? How many... How many marriages are on the brink of being healed and restored completely? How many people are just, just short of getting total victory in their life and in their relationship or with their kids? But they, they haven't understood this and they just think, well, it's all on God. If God wants to do it, he'll do it. Well, I see a lot of times in Scripture where it was dependent on the person. Would they, would they push? Would they endure? Would they persevere? You remember the parable that Jesus gave on prayer about the unjust judge? Where he said there was, a, there was an unjust judge in one of, the, one of the towns and a poor widow woman was coming to him day after day after day after day, pleading her case day after day after day. And this is what Jesus said. He said, he said if for no other reason than her persistence, will that judge finally look at her and say, my goodness, just give the woman what she wants before she drives me crazy. Now, that's not a good, that's not a picture of God in heaven of how he normally thinks and operates, okay? He was just given an example of even if this unjust judge will eventually give this person the answer, how much more a good God in heaven? When someone comes and they pursue and they persist. But again, that takes endurance and that takes character to do that. Last passage I want to read to you this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. And, and what I'm trying to show you this morning is the connection between the spiritual and the physical. And so many Christians, they only think about Christianity as a spiritual exercise. In other words, spiritually is where I'm saved, right? Spiritually is where I'm redeemed. 
you know, spiritually, that my sins are forgiven, okay? But there's a physical side to Christianity that helps you obtain those things. So we see that with Moses and Aaron, but I want you to look in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 with me as well, and you're going to see this. This is the story of Naaman. Some of you are familiar with this story. 2 Kings 5, when Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and high in favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So the king of Syria uh, really liked Naaman, and so he sends a letter to the king of Israel. Verse 6, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. This is a hilarious letter because Syria and Israel were at odds. He sends Naaman to the king of Israel. They know that leprosy cannot be healed. They know that leprosy is an incurable disease. He sends him to the king of Israel, and he says, I've sent you my servant Naaman that you may cure him of leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure someone of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So he, this is, you know, he knows. I can't do this. But, verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a message to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Notice, first of all, Elisha didn't even come to the door. Okay, So Naaman is this great, powerful man in King of Syria. Elisha says he has the answer. He comes, knocks on the door. And Elijah's servant comes to the door and answers it. He doesn't even come and see the man. And, and right here, Naaman could have got offended because he's used to being honored. He's used to having honor. And you'd have to imagine this. This would like, be like one of you calling the church office and saying, I need to see Pastor Josh. It's an emergency. And it's, I've got these problems going on. I need to see. And you come and I send out somebody and say, look, just go tell them to go dunk and buy you rapide seven times and they'll be fine. I'm going to try that one day. <laughs> you know, you read these things and you think, okay, yeah, you're reading this a Bible story. Yeah, but these, these are real. It just, you know, if you put it in your context, you realize how strange this really is. Elijah doesn't come out. He said, just go tell him to dunk in the river seven times. Well, he's offended by it. Verse 11, Naaman was angry. He went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now, this is big because Naaman has in his mind how he thinks things work. He's got an expectation in his mind of how these things work. He goes, I'm going to go to God. I'm going to go to the man of God. He's going to come out. He's going to wave his hand over me. And there's going to be a little miracle. Maybe there's some pixie dust. You know, something happens. All of a sudden, the leprosy goes away. He said, that's how it's supposed to happen. It's not supposed to be me go dunk in the river seven times. Now, again, if you think about the connection between the physical and the spiritual, is it the will of God for Naaman to be healed? It is. 
Could he have done it the way he said? Wave his hand over him and, and cure? Of course, that, that happened. He, it happened in Scripture where leprosy was spoken by somebody speaking over it. But God doesn't do the same, doesn't do <clears throat> the same thing the same way every time. And so there's this connection for Naaman. There is this connection to him being able to do something that is very physical. In other words, it requires something other than him being spiritual, right? This requires Naaman to do something that he doesn't want to do. Something physical that he doesn't want to do. Go get in a nasty, muddy river that he thinks is ridiculous. It requires him to humble himself seven times, dunk under the water. What, what is this really accomplishing? Is this actually moving God? Is this actually making power available? What is going on here? Is, is God like up in heaven going, okay, one, two times down? Okay, you know, my power is magically going to come available at seven. No, the power is there the whole time. Really, what you'll find out through Scripture, this has very little to do with God. And this has a lot to do with Naaman. This has a lot to do with a a character flaw issue, humility that needs to be worked in Naaman. Remember Paul, suffering produces something. This has to do with something that's going on in Naaman. And so when that change, when Naaman submits to it, and he does this very physical thing, it produces a phenomenal result that no one else could have produced in his life at that time. He gets a complete miracle that couldn't have been produced. Now put this in your situation. You go, I'm having all these problems. I've got all these issues going on. I've got this problem, physical problem, marriage problem, kid problem, my job problem, all these problems, all these problems swirling all around. And then you get this very simple instruction from the Word of God. Can you dedicate time each morning to pray, read your Bible, and seek God? And our mindset's like Naaman. We go, well, I didn't think that's how it was going to happen. I thought, you know, God knows my situation. If God wanted to do it, he would just do it. Yeah, but what about your part? Not a problem with God's part. God can do his part, no problem. He's been doing it for thousands of years. No problem for God. But how many of you know God is not one of those fathers that just, he just, he just gives their kids every little thing they want whenever they want it? But sometimes there's a process to things. And the question is, are you going to yield to that process? And do you have the endurance and the character and the self-control to stay committed to that process and to follow through on that process when your flesh has long got tired of doing it. Because I can tell you this, many people, they would have the result that they're after if they would just stick to doing what they know is right. But so many times they give up, their flesh gets tired, their flesh gets offended, their, their flesh gets full of fear, doubt, And so they lose what was right on the other side, what God had for them. Verse 13. So Naaman gets mad. uh, Actually, verse 12. And he says, Are not the Abana and the far, far rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. But his servant... His servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. 
See, Naaman had his way that he wanted God to move, and God had his way that he wanted Naaman to move. And sometimes we're so caught up on how we want or think or what our experience has been with how God moves that we're not listening to hear, yeah, but how does God want me to move? What's God expecting of me in this process? What's God wanting to do and accomplish in me in this process? Not saying God even sent the problem. Please understand that. Okay, every, every suffering, every pain, every difficulty, every trial in your life is not from God. It doesn't mean, though, <coughs> that, those, but that that suffering or that difficulty can't be used to produce something in you. It doesn't mean it's from God. But the fact that you're going through it, God, if you'll let him, God can use it to train you, to develop you, and to change you. So Naaman had his way that he wanted God to move, and he was fixed on that. He was focused on that. But God had his way that he wanted Naaman to move. And how many of you know God was going to win? If Naaman had gotten mad and quit and walked off, he never would have seen the miracle that God had for him. But finally, he yielded to God's way, and he got that result. He got that healing that he was after. So for us, this is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Please understand that for many of us, the physical side of Christianity is just important as the spiritual. Meaning, there are lots of things in your life as a Christian that you need to walk out if you're going you're to stay on this road with God. And that many times the result and the answer that you're after is tied to that. It's not just tied to you know, spiritual things. But it's tied to your ability and your, and your self-control and your discipline to be able to do the things you know that you need to do. Amen.